travelogue entry number one. It's about 2 a.m. I'm sitting here in my office. I just uh, sort of did a whirlwind pack job and uh, got showered up and now I'm out of here. A lot of you probably know that, you know, typical routine kind of for travel is hour to the airport, two hours for an international flight just to wait get there early, stuff like that. So a 6 a.m. flight departure doesn't sound bad until you realize you're up at 2 o'clock to start the whole friggin' process. So I apologize if this is brief, but I'm crushed, and you know, hopefully people aren't expecting big shows uh, on here on the uh, Experiments Experience uh, podcast. Brian, the weather looks pretty good. Can't really complain about that. Of course, it's monsoon season, I think, in Bangkok. So we got here two hours early at Cleveland Hopkins for nothing because there was nobody at the check-in booth. I don't know. At least the bags are checked all the way through. You know, and just get to sit. At least once you get to the gate, you know how it is. Just You can sit. So it's like 4.45 a.m. or something. Just want to get on the plane do this stupid little connector flight and then get on the big jet so I can take an antihistamine and knock myself out and go to sleep. Yeah. Well, did right, you yeah. try? Starbucks, but you can't, you can't go wrong with it. Yeah. Right. Really? Yeah. 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 The other morning. Oh, that's going to be dangerous for me. That's going to be like instant crack, you know, yeah. because of my, my love-hate relationship with coffee already. Well, I was, yeah. we, we, were, we were a family camp out. We used to coffee. Right. It's an Indian guy stuff, right? So I brought my beer with me. It was popular dad there. Oh, nice. I could have had, had a little barista going there. <laughs> I could have been a little chip jar. We're 11 hours deep into a 13-hour flight. I don't think I've ever made a blog at 35,000 feet before. 
right now what I'm trying to do is actually come up with some kind of a plan to take advantage of a four to five hour layover in Tokyo, uh, which is itself six hours away from Bangkok. Uh, I don't know, check out some of the cuisine there, um, post at least a picture or two of uh, the food uh, and stuff like that. There'll definitely be no lifting or gym experience going on in Tokyo, but maybe some eating and I can use some.
finally really sinking their teeth into that whole idea. But I'll blog again, and uh, i got to get some breakfast. A couple of other notable points, I suppose, is yesterday the spotty internet connection that I had just failed. So clearly I'm not going to be able to do the audio blog uh, on the nutritionradio.org website right now. Uh, I'm going to work my way down to a Starbucks that I saw and maybe we can get some Wi-Fi there and remedy that situation and even make a blog, maybe put up a movie on Shugart's Hammer on the testosterone.com website. And uh, one of the random facts, found some very interesting energy drinks in one of the little, I don't know if it was a pharmacy or a corner mart or something uh, when we were walking around last night, which was my birthday. And last night's birthday activities really was just eating some simple Thai food uh, and trying to relax because yesterday was just so busy with the everything from elephant rides to uh, the ruins of Ayutthaya to um, the Buddhist temples uh, that we entered. Just very, very cool stuff. Uh, a day I'll always remember. for commentary. Here's one on renal nutrition. There's been some interesting meta-analysis lately that low-protein diets may in fact not be ultimately helpful, even with renal patients, which is very interesting. This one's about a meal pattern with less than 40 grams of protein per day. from Mahidol University. Here's a paper on the effects of highly developed rice bran on plasma glucose and lipid levels in diabetic rats. They made the rats, di the rats diabetic with uh, streptozotocin. And it looks like there's uh, genetically engineered rices that were developed in the early 90s in Korea. And they result in lower liver glycogen, uh, lower plasma triglycerides. Interesting genetic engineering to alter carbohydrate metabolism of rice. That's from Minju Ryu and colleagues in Korea. Here's an interesting poster exploring predictors of nutrition literacy in fitness studio users. Uh, it's from a Norwegian university, uh, Akershus University College in Norway. They ultimately conclude a higher level of education. It seems to be strongly related to a higher level of nutrition literacy in the fitness studio members. And that the more physically active they were, the more knowledge they seemed to have. I suppose it makes sense. I personally think it would be very interesting to see how knowledgeable uh, some of these uh, gym users were that had masters or PhDs and compare them to, you know, say practitioners like dietitians on sports nutrition specific knowledge. Here's an interesting paper from uh, Thailand, again, it's Mehadol University, and it's about high protein seasoning products 
made from egg white powder, an inexpensive uh, way to add protein to the diet. This is for uh, ambulatory uh, peritoneal dialysis patients because they have a problem with protein energy malnutrition. And because at that point, you know, they're losing uh, protein, so they actually have to have more, unlike the protein restriction that you see in earlier stage uh, renal disease. But anyway, egg white powder as a base for spices. Uh, very cool. That's Jutamas Onomi, or Jutamas Onom, and colleagues at the Faculty of Medicine here in Bangkok at Mahadol. Here's a poster that says, drinking water results in greater fat oxidation than beverages that contain carbs during low to moderate intensity exercise. It's a French paper. And that seems pretty obvious to me. That kind of stuff has been looked at for ages. We did some work with sports drinks ourselves and fat oxidation versus water. Of course, carbohydrates are going to increase blood glucose and insulin and retard fat burning. Um, I think this is an example of sometimes we see researchers reinventing the wheel, so to speak. It's interesting to see it add to the already large amount of data on the kind of low to moderate cardio stuff, though, and, and you know, quasi-fasted. Continued browsing of this goldmine of posters here at ICN. This one's called Vitamin D Status and the Risk of Cardiovascular Disease Death. This is actually in press with the, with the American Journal of Epidemiology, uh, Kilkinnon et al. Very interesting. After adjustment for potential confounders, the risk for cardiovascular disease death was 0.76, so you know, let's say a, a quarter lower, if you will, uh, in the people who eat the most vitamin D, or had the highest vitamin D status, that is, versus those with uh, the lowest. So it says there may actually be a causal link between vitamin D status and heart disease. So now we've got heart disease added to the uh, list of cancer and uh, bone health and other issues with vitamin D, such a hot topic. Here's one relevant to uh, T-Muscle. This is called the emerging role of media in changing nutrition behavior outcomes. Wow, this is from an office of the World Health Organization itself. Introduction says to use the media to provide nutrition messages and change the way, in this case, Jordanians eat. Uh, actively counter and correct food and nutrition misinformation. And uh, the conclusions here, although there's some limitations, you know, we're talking about sort of subjective self-reports and people who respond to these kinds of reports, of course, may already be enthusiastic about changing their behaviors. But we conclude that the media are valuable and an effective tool in communicating nutrition education when supported by credible scientific information from nutrition professionals. That's Tatiana Elcour, World Health Organization. Here's one on correlates of obesity among people in different age groups. This is in France, uh, near Kassen Chow and colleagues. Uh, basically, it's saying that uh, younger adults uh, under 30, 30 years of age, significant factors contributing to obesity were being a manual worker or an intermediate professional. That's interesting. Being a craftsman or tradesman and not good health status. Uh, 
that changes a little bit for middle-aged people, 30 to 49, the significant factors contributing to their obesity. And again, these are things to kind of consider in, in your one's own life, I guess. Not good health status and insufficient income. Here's another paper from Mahidol University in Thailand. Lepanon, weight management by various methods of dietary advice with meal replacement. So they're using MRPs and simple dietary interventions and uh, conclusions here. After practicing a simplified dietary advice for 12 weeks that was easy to understand, easy to follow, easy to practice, uh, there was more weight loss. Uh, they conclude the use of one meal replacement per day helps to improve dietary compliance and maintain weight loss. This whole thing reminds me of Chris's uh, velocity diet. Here's an interesting, interesting paper in Kenyan uh, school kids uh, from Hullet et al. And they're showing that meat and milk increases uh, test scores, whereas just energy intake does not. Now that's a drought-prone population. Meat may be rare and it may be dealing with replaced deficiencies, but it's very interesting that meat and milk help in straight-up calories do not clearly related somehow to the essential amino acids that they're getting, the complete proteins. An Australian paper by Wagner et al. on elatic acid and uh, vaccinic acid, these are trans fats, uh, is reporting that there's lower amounts of trans fats in the food supply than there used to be. And you would think that'd be true in developed countries uh, like Australia. Uh, said about half of the products they looked at, and they were looking at uh, all manner of things, margarines, pastries, things like that. Uh, about half the products contained less than 1% trans fatty acids uh, per total fatty acids. About one-third of the products they looked at ranged between 1% to 5% trans fat. However, there are a small percentage of products, 3% uh, of products, were more than one part in five saturated fat, uh, I'm sorry, trans fat. But this really kind of supports what I've been thinking lately is there's been such a consumer interest in eating less trans fat, the companies respond and we have lower amounts now. And here are two posters from Brazil. This first one is from uh, Teodoro and colleagues and they're feeding branched-chain amino acids, uh, they're supplementing them to the offspring of rats that were, had uh, basically mothers that were malnourished, protein malnourished. Uh, and I can just cut to the chase on this one. Leucine supplementation uh, reversed part of the growth reduction that was observed in the neonates from the malnourished female rats. So they suggest further studies are necessary to confirm if such effects result from the action of leucine on the mTOR pathway. But this, to me, has relationships to uh, you know, uh, dieting or if you don't get enough protein, maybe leucine supplementation can replace part of that or do some damage control on otherwise low protein intake. Again, this is just rats, and we're talking about infant rats that were born to mothers that were protein restricted. But leucine seemed to have a protective effect. This second paper from Brazil is Pedrosa and colleagues. Leucine favors protein status, but does not.
not reduce fat in rats during the rapid weight loss phase. So they actually took some rats and they, for a week's period, they cut their food intake by 50%, and, but gave some of them leucine in the process. Interesting conclusions here that the rats in the leucine group uh, had significantly higher liver weight and liver protein, but they looked at uh, the gastroc muscle, their little calf muscle there, and it did not really significantly differ between leucine and control groups. So their conclusion was the results indicate short-term, low-dose leucine supplementation. Now this is a diet that's 0.59% of leucine. So, and again, rats are going to differ from people, but it did not reduce body fat any further in the rats in the early rapid phase of weight loss, and it seemed to preserve liver, uh, but not muscle mass during this very aggressive dieting situation. So they suggest uh, different doses and different durations of this kind of aggressive restriction to see whether or not they could get some protective effect out of the uh, out of the leucine. They also didn't see differences in IGF-1 or corticosterone, uh, uh, you know, think rat cortisol, if you will, between the control and the leucine groups. Here we have a paper on maternal fish consumption and childbearing, but the interesting thing is about DHA versus mercury and which one outweighs the other. And they're actually suggesting, uh, they're even profiling foods, uh, and they're showing that mothers who eat 100 grams per day worth of tuna, they have kids with an IQ that's 20 points lower. Uh, not all foods have that kind of uh, negative impact. That was the biggest halibut and herring or, you know, differ, for example. Halibut's about 14 points lower, though. Um, salmon, only about 2 to 3 points lower. And some of these really don't show much reduction in IQ at all. So their conclusion is that uh, the mercury effect dominates over the benefits of DHA. Uh, this whole paper just kind of suggests that we live in a very polluted world. Um, of course, this is fairly large amounts. So, and this is Zealmaker and colleagues. Uh, and the paper is from the Netherlands. Okay, got to make a quick note about this one. This is a uh, paper from Rome, Italy. Uh, Wheel and colleagues and they're looking at potatoes. They're saying little is actually known about the nutrient composition of many of the world's potatoes, and potatoes are the world's number one non-grain food commodity. It actually says the differences in things like vitamin C, iron, potassium, can be so large that intake of one potato variety versus another could be the difference between nutrient deficiency and adequacy. That's pretty amazing. And with four recognized potato species and 200 wild relatives of potato, this is probably uh, a bit superfluous, but let me run down a quick list. The highest protein potatoes were the Roja Riñon, uh, which looks like they're from Spain. The highest fiber are Runa potatoes from Argentina. Sorry, Argentina. The lowest iron, which many men might be interested in, are Negrita potatoes from Peru or Cara potatoes from Spain. Uh, for potassium, it looks like superior potatoes from Canada have the highest. 
uh, superior potatoes from Canada also have the highest magnesium, which is another at-risk uh, nutrient. And uh, for vitamin C, it looks like the highest are Korean potatoes, the Chaju potato or the Voran potato from the U.S. Here's an interesting one. Effects of alcohol metabolizing gene variants on cardiovascular risk factors. This is Husamoen. Uh, uh, it's a study from Denmark. Uh, the bottom line here really is that uh, there were strong associations between alcohol intake and blood pressure and blood lipids. That's not a surprise. Uh, some gene variants had only minor effects, but it says genetic variations in the ADH1B and ADH7 may modify the increased risk of cardiovascular disease associated with heavy drinking through an effect on the blood lipid profile. So we see some people getting away with uh, heavier drinking and others not getting away with it. It's just more information on, you know, nutrigenetics, nutrigenomics. It's worth noting that genes aren't all powerful, though. Here's an interesting study on the mRNA expression, so sort of the you know the outgrowth of given genes of lipid metabolism, and in this case, these genes are altered in bitter gourd supplementation. Now, this is just mice, but it's interesting to show how um, you know foods and and plant chemicals affect gene activity. There was a hypoglycemic effect of this bitter gourd supplementation. There was lower expression of the messenger RNA for LPL. That's an enzyme, of course, that draws fat out of the blood for storage. Um, and also lower expression of the uh, hepatic uh, PPAR gamma, which is a lipid-modifying uh, messenger RNA. The conclusion here is uh, the present results show that the messenger RNA expression of lipid metabolism-related genes are altered in bitter gourd supplemented mice. So I may have to look, uh, look at bitter gourd in the future. Interesting. And here we have a paper from Mahidol University again, uh, developed of a multimedia website, an educational tool for self-help menu planning for diabetic adolescents. And they're teaching carbohydrate counting with this. This is uh, Chantima and colleagues. Uh, again, Mahidol University here in Thailand. I'll just drop to the conclusion here when they're talking about whether it's uh, exercise or carbohydrate counting and things like that. These results demonstrate a significant effectiveness of web-based diabetes education and management and may prove to be uh, the attractive self-learning tool for all diabetics. So again, kind of the power of uh, internet publishing and management tools. Strange mix of foods. Hotels obviously catering to people from Europe, uh, United States, uh, things like that. There's everything from fried rice to cold cuts to muesli to some pretty greasy eggs and standard fare, uh, limp bacon, things like that. The immediate goal here uh, when I catch up with uh, a student is hop on the bus to the ICN meeting and hit the opening ceremonies. Uh, Her Royal Highness the Princess of Thailand is 
going to speak, along with some other notable, notable people, MD, PhDs, all, I think, directors from the National Institutes of Health or World Health Organization, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, those kinds of things. And then maybe uh, go to one of the many coffee breaks. I mean, this meeting is so large, literally it's $20,000 to sponsor a coffee break. And um, then the expo, and look around there a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, 
they will be giving um, award lectures after the okay. uh, presentation ceremony. Great. And this is from 12.30 to 2. Okay. So that's tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow. that's tomorrow. You're most oh, welcome. Uh, okay. Would you like to have one as well? Or uh, I'll use hers. I'm, okay. I'm getting overwhelmed. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I saw Do you need a, you want a, you want a bag? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I bags would be bag. wonderful. Cab rides to and from the Bytec Arena are cheap. If you can find a straight up cabbie who's not going to try to rob you. And I had to see that coffee talk, so we were going to do what we had to do. Due to its 
known effects on vigilance, and mainly as, as it has been repetitively shown in the literature, mainly in situation of reduced alertness, like early morning, after lunch, work at night, etc. In the short term, for the vast majority of people, the stimulatory effects of caffeine do not depend on age and will concern attention, learning, and memory. However, in a study that compared young to elderly subjects that received 200 to 250 milligrams caffeine, it was shown that the treatment of complex tasks is in general less effective in older subjects. But caffeine improves performance only in simple tasks in young subjects and in more complex tasks needing sustained attention in elderly subjects. And apparently higher doses of caffeine appear necessary in the elderly. Concerning long-term effects and retrospective population studies, there is a relation between cognition and regular coffee intake. There are two Dutch studies concerning subjects aged between 24 and 81 years that have reported positive effects cogni on cognition, reaction time and verbal memory, but no age-related difference. And a British study, which you can see is a quite large study, showed positive effects on cognition, and the effects were more marked in men than in women. This study was supported by the Five cups of instant for 16 weeks. Better OGTT. Forty to sixty-four year old Gaius with blood glucose of one hundred to one forty. Suggesting, suggesting 
The posters yesterday were amazing. I've audio blogged just a whole lot of that gold mine of research findings and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, there's the food and just the radically different culture. I will look forward to being able to spend days without my shirt sticking to my back. I gotta say that. Disturbingly, I've almost become used to that. This is a hot, wet damp kind of place and honestly I'm more geared toward the cooler climes of the north on another front my training has totally taken a back seat which honestly usually happens with travel I've been reduced to push-ups and sit-ups in my hotel room uh, there's a sort of useless gym here in the hotel but anyway it's Friday morning and I've managed to sort of recycle enough clothing to get through the morning at the conference. Some, some cool stuff's going to be available on protein and lipids. Uh, it'll end about lunchtime. Then I'm really wondering what to do with my bags since by that time, you know, checkouts come and gone. So I'll have to figure something out and start the gigantic trek home. or so, the leaves have changed a lot. It's that time in October. It's ironic, I'm wearing shorts and it's about 50 degrees, maybe. But for the last week I've been wearing long sleeves and, and jeans in 99 degree weather with equal humidity. Coming off about 10 or 12 hours of straight sleep. Uh, broken only briefly by eating a little and waking up and coming on this walk it's just sort of illustrating how radically someone's reality changes with travel everything's sort of back to the way it was uh, I'm reminded of that Elvis Costello tune every day I write the book or at least the title in this past week I think I've written a few pages that are worth reading I'm sure I'll have to face the inevitable backlog of work and family duties and things like that that accumulate when you 
go away for uh, even a few days, let alone a week or more, it's all worth it. Thank you.